The scripture for today's sermon is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. The word of God speaks to us. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Paul. And thank you, Benton, for letting us celebrate your baptism with you. Uh, I've been to church already, and we were just getting started. So uh, let's pray with one another, for one another, and then we'll, we'll dive in. So Heavenly Father, I thank you that we get to be together that people are by us and around us that we may love and be family or friends with, or maybe we don't even quite know yet, um, but it's not an accident that we're all here together hearing this story told by Jesus this day, that you have plans for us and you're leading us. And so I, I pray that everything you have for each of us, we would receive today. And, and as we always pray, I simply ask that you would help me help my friends see Jesus, how awesome you are. Heavenly Father, how much love that you have for us and spirit that you, you, you are real and with us and working for our good. We pray all this in Jesus' name, God's people said, amen. This week I was, I was thinking about, in light of just studying this parable, I was thinking about like questions and answers throughout history and how some answers have been just so good that they just continue through the ages. Answers that are given that were just so memorable that over hundreds, if not thousands of years, that we still remember the answer given. Something that came to mind that uh, I just know about because I, I tend to be like a history dork, especially when it comes to the Greeks. I was thinking about a story that happened in 338 BC regarding a guy named Philip II, Alexander the Great's dad. 
He was on the brink of conquering all of Greece, bringing all of Greece under his rule. But there was one city-state left, a group that had quite a reputation of being kind of intense, known as the Spartans. And he was trying to bring that final city-state under his rule so he could be the total king of all Greece. And so he sent them this letter that had a question. And the question was, hey, are you going to submit to me without delay? Because if I bring my army into your land, I'm going to destroy your farms and enslave your people and raise your city. And so the Spartan leadership, they received this scroll, this message, this question, are you going to submit without delay if I bring my army into your land? This is what's coming for you. And the Spartans, in a way that only the Spartans can in history, they send an official reply back. And so the, the, the reply comes, it's a scroll, and it's unscrolled, and then King Philip reads their reply, and the reply simply is, if, period. <laughs> if, it's a big if. If you can bring your armies into your land, all that stuff will happen. But so in, in their kind of like just macho Spartan tough way, they give this answer that was considered so good that here thousands of years later, historians still talk about it. Bring all that up because Jesus of Nazareth, the, the most, even if you're here today and you're just exploring Christianity, what's undeniable is that he is the most significant figure in all of history. What's so fascinating about his answers to questions is they're not just remembered throughout history. His answers to questions make history. They shape and they form history. And today we are looking at an answer of Jesus to a question, an an all-important question. And it's an answer that, that has shaped the world. The Good Samaritan, or the phrase Good Samaritan, is just like universally understood and adopted as, as describing a person who, who helps another person. And we might be familiar with this story, but we may not fully understand the significance of the answer that this story is a part of, an answer from Jesus to the ultimate question. The question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to go to heaven? What shall I do to be a part of the kingdom of God? That's the essence of that question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? We may know the story, but but I think we might overlook the point of the answer given to Jesus. So as Matt mentioned, we're a part of a series, we're taking part in a series right now as we kick off 2024, where we're just going through our mission as a church to love God, love people, and push back darkness. And today we're going to talk about what it means to love people. Jesus gives a a world-changing, life-shaping answer in this passage And we're going to look at his answer together. So the first thing I want us to see is loving people is required in God's kingdom. Let's look at the the first about four verses here. We see that loving people is required in the kingdom of God. The context is Jesus is sitting with a group of disciples and he's teaching. And suddenly, verse 25, we see what happens. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a big question, the big question, but who is asking the question? It's important to understand the story, to understand the questioner, and it's a lawyer, we're told. He's a, a professional. And when we think of lawyers in our, our context, in our, our 
moment in history, we think of experts in criminal law or in, in civil law, but what we need to understand 2,000 years ago in, in the time of Jesus's ministry on earth, that a lawyer in Israel was an academic expert, a professional when it came to the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. See, in Israel, it was a theocracy. There was no, there was no division between church and state. And so this man who is a lawyer, he's a, he's a professional when it comes to the law of Israel, but that was God's law. And so the Gospel of Luke first mentions that, that Jesus is teaching. Imagine the scene. He's sitting down teaching disciples, but then this man, he stands up. And as he stands up, he's doing so to indicate that, that he, this is like an aggressive action, an assertive gesture. So if we would have been there, we probably would have felt a bit of like tension in the air. This man has an agenda or an ulterior motive. He's standing to test Jesus. The text tells us that. He's, he is the professional, the expert. He's suspect of this teacher who's gathering such a following, and he's seeking to expose him as naive, expose Jesus as who he thinks the amateur that he is. Jesus is a lightweight in his opinion, and he's, he's going to ask him a question to trip him up or catch him. And so he asks Jesus, not genuinely wanting to learn or grow or understand, but to put him to the test. And Jesus being gracious isn't going to just dismiss him, but Jesus even loving this man who's out to trap him is going to be gracious and hold up truth for him and us to see. So this lawyer is trying to put Jesus on the stand and get him to say something that would condemn him, maybe something heretical or wrong about the law of God. So he asks this basic but fundamental important question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to enter into the kingdom of God? What do I need to do to get into heaven? And Jesus answers his question with a question, which Jesus seems to do a lot. Why does Jesus always answer questions with a question? Why not answer a question with a question? (laughs) Seems to be a good strategy to get to the heart of a conversation and an issue. Jesus, knowing the lawyer knew the answer, he asks this counter question. So you're, you're the lawyer. You tell me what does the law say? In verse 26, he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So this lawyer references rightly Two commands that sum up all the commands of God. When Moses came down that mountain with the Ten Commandments, and in one tablet he held commands, the first four commands about loving God rightly, and in the other tablet, uh, the, the other second half of the commands about really how you should love people. And although there were hundreds of commands throughout God's law, that at the heart of them, they could all be boiled down to these two things the lawyer rightly answers. He's referencing Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7, what was known as the Shema. Oh, here... Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So the lawyer knows the right answer. You, you, you have eternal life when you love God fully, always, 
Love him with your heart, your passions, your emotions, your deepest convictions, with your soul, the deepest sense of your, your interbeing, with your mind, your, your thinking, your reasoning, with your strength, your, your efforts, your abilities, your gifts. In other words, love God fully in every way, all the time, all the way. That's the first part. And then the second part, he references Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love God fully all the time and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. You care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. So The question is, what do I need to do to live with God forever in his kingdom? That's the essence of the question. The lawyer rightly answers, love God in every way, all the way, all the time, and love your neighbor just as much as you love yourself. You do those things, and then you have eternal life. You're right with God forever. And Jesus answers in verse 28, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live I think it'd be right to, to pause and ask ourselves just to, to take a breath and say, okay, if I'm pausing here in the story and I'm, I'm there, or I'm hearing it now, like, how do I feel? <laughs> How's this striking me? And hopefully, and I think rightly, if we're, if we're really listening, we start to feel an inability, our lack, our need. We start to feel like we, we can't do this on our own, but we need help. We need salvation because no one loves God in every way, all the way. And, and no one all the time loves neighbors as much as we love ourselves. At this moment, the right response from this lawyer would have been admitting to Jesus what Jesus talks about in other places in, in his ministry, namely the Sermon on the Mount, that this lawyer has a, a poverty in spirit. Because Jesus says that's actually how we experience and enter the kingdom of God. To, to rightly admit, like, hey, I, I have a spiritual poverty. I need redemption. I need help. I can't do anything to gain entrance into God's kingdom. I can't do anything in my own strength to earn eternal life. I need mercy from God. I need grace from God. I need forgiveness from God. And that's what this lawyer was being invited to do in this moment. But instead, his, his ears are plugged to the invitation of conviction and mercy. It's like he's got noise-canceling headphones of his own pride on, and he's not truly listening to what Jesus is saying to him. One of the purposes of God's law is to be a mirror to us to help us see ourselves rightly. And, and, and I do this, and I suspect you do this. Actually, every human besides one who's ever walked the earth does this. What we do is we judge ourselves, not by God's standards, but we judge ourselves by, by comparing ourselves to others and conveniently others that we think we're doing much better than. And so if we start to feel conviction about not being a good husband, we quickly think of, of Doug at work and we say, well, I'm a way better husband than Doug. I'm actually a great husband. I don't need to change or grow. If we start feeling convicted about, about being a gossip, we say, oh, no, Mike, he really, he really talks bad about people. I just, you know, I, I keep it real sometimes, Right? We, we compare our righteousness to others strategically so we feel good about ourselves. We always look horizontally to, to consider our own righteousness 
But what the law calls us to do is to look vertically, to look up and to, and to see who God is and what he expects of us and then help us see ourselves rightly. And when we do that, the law is a mirror. It helps us see ourselves rightly, but then the law convicts us. It reveals our, our shortcomings, our, our sin, the ways that we miss it. But then the law, it, it invites us, it moves us towards God to receive grace and mercy that only he can give. But that's not what is happening in the life and the heart of this questioner, this lawyer. What happens is sad. Look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, asks, and who is my neighbor? So he's, this, this questioner, this lawyer, he, he's feeling like he needs to defend himself, to vindicate himself, to prove his innocence through his own self-righteousness. And, and in a cynical way, he's responding in pride and saying, okay, yeah, I've got the love God thing down, and I, I'm pretty sure I've got the love people thing down, but let's just make sure who, who are these people that I have to love. <laughs> his question is, who do I have to love? Don't miss that. And that's the wrong question. And so Jesus is gonna tell a story to help him see how wrong that question is. And Jesus tells a parable. It's a tale Jesus is creating, but he's doing it to make a point, to make this, this lawyer and the listeners in the moment and us now think about it, what it means to live actually rightly before God and to really love people. That brings us to the second thing we need to see. Loving people is a greater act than we imagine. Loving people is a greater act than we imagine. Let's look at the next five verses. And Jesus replied. He begins to tell a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So this is a real road from, from Jerusalem to Jericho and there's some things about the road regarding like the, the actual journey that are significant. Jerusalem is something like 3,000 plus feet above sea level. Jericho actually is a city under sea level by about 1,000 feet. So as you make this 18 mile journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, you're going 18 miles, but you're also descending going down 4,000 feet. It's like a windy road, physically dangerous, filled with rocks and caves. You could fall and even die in several places due to, due to cliffs and such. But what made it really dangerous is because of, of the type of road it was, there were caves and big rocks and blind spots all along the way. And it was for hundreds of years known as a, a bad neighborhood, a dangerous road because it was a preferred spot for bandits and robbers and criminals. And so Jesus begins his story with a man alone on this road, a man who's outnumbered on this road, who's knocked down, who's robbed, who's stripped naked and severely beaten. The term here in Greek, it, it, it gives the impression of repeated blows. He's smashed, he's pummeled, he's battered to the extent that he's critically injured as he's left for dead. He's, need, he's in need of saving. If he's left on his own, he's gonna die there naked and beaten. But he's not alone for long. Verse 31, 
By chance, a priest was going down that road, Jesus says. So here comes good news as we hear the story. We think, a priest, this is a religious leader. This is a, a, a man whose life was devoted to knowing God's word and doing God's work in the temple, and he's on the scene. He knows what God requires of him. He's committed to heart. Micah 6, 8, that said, God requires us to, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. So surely he's going to bring aid to this man, but Jesus says, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. That could literally, literally read like goes in the opposite direction. Sees the man, turns around and goes the other way. It's gut-wrenching, but Jesus continues to tell the story. We still have hope. So likewise, a Levite. All right, there's, there's more aid on the way. Maybe it'll be different this time. When he came to the place, he saw and passed by, though, on the other side. Levites were not priests, but they still were a holy order. They were assistants to priests. They had temple duties and services, but the same thing happens. Again, nothing. So two men approach, both religious leaders, both expected because of their profession to love God and their knowledge of God's word. We would expect that they would show love to somebody in need, but neither show love. Now, what's interesting is that if you read commentaries, like at this point, there are usually pages upon pages of explanations as to why these men didn't help. Maybe they were concerned with, you know, being ritually clean, and if he was dead, they were going to touch the body. And, but what's, it's important to remember, we don't have to like think deeply about what these two men were thinking because these two men weren't real. They're characters in a story. They weren't thinking anything, right? Jesus is, is telling a story that he's making up to make a point. And the main point is two men who knew God's law, who claimed to love God, who should have shown that love by loving this man, they don't. They have an empty religion. They have a head full of knowledge, but they have cold hearts. So what happens next? Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he, the beaten man, was. So here comes along a Samaritan. Culturally, it would have been unthinkable for a Samaritan to help a Jew. Samaritans and Jews were severe enemies. We talked about this in some detail last week. The hatred between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people had been real and constant for over 400 years. And so if we sat as first listeners to this story, we would have thought, oh, the Samaritan, this is the worst thing ever. Things just went from, from bad to worse when a Samaritan comes on the scene. Is he going to finish the job that the robber started? Is he going to make it a point just to, to step on this man? Is he just going to spit in his direction? They're sworn enemies. This is bad. And yet, where Jesus takes the story would have shocked listeners. Though these people are enemies, these two men should be considered enemies. This Samaritan, he ministers to the dying Jewish victim. Listen to what Jesus says he does. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So when this Samaritan sees the man who's, who's beaten in the story, he has compassion, compassio. It means with feeling. It means literally to be moved in the pit of your stomach, to feel something in your gut. 
And compassion, we often think, just means feeling bad. Like, oh, I have compassion for that person. My heart goes out to them. But biblically and specifically in the life of Jesus, true compassion always goes beyond just feeling. Like, what good is compassion if we don't actually do anything? True compassion always leads to action and love. And that's the case here. Verse 34, he had compassion and he went to him. The other two men turned around and left, but the Samaritan, he sees them, and instead of going the other way, he goes to him. And Jesus says he, he bound up his wounds. And if you're imagining the story as one of the original hearers, you would picture how this would happen. This, this Samaritan isn't traveling with a first aid kit. He's probably taking his own clothes and ripping them or taking spare clothes he has with him and and ripping them in order to bring about cloths to bind up these wounds that are bleeding then god then jesus says he he begins pouring on oil oil that he had carried for his own food his sustenance he puts on the wounds of this man to to bring a, a softening and, and a soothing, the rips and the tears from the beating he begins to, to care for by pouring on oil. And then Jesus says he, he continues pouring on wine. So he had the wine to drink as he traveled, and yet he pours w- w- wine on the wounds as a disinfectant, right? Like we would put alcohol on or, or neosporin on an open wound. This man is putting oil and wine, this ancient first aid. And this, this, this word pour here gives connotations of like generous amounts. He's not just dabbing. He is everything he has, this oil and this wine, he is pouring out fully on the wounds of this beaten man. And then he set him on his own animal. So unable to walk, the Samaritan puts the man on his own animal so he can be carried, meaning the Samaritan now is gonna walk the rest of the way or perhaps like a parent holds a child in the saddle, the Samaritan is, is holding this man up. And he brought him to an inn. He brings him to a place of rest and comfort and provision to recover. And look at this. And he took care of him. All night he took care of him. You just imagine the Samaritan sitting by this stranger who he has never exchanged a word with, who he doesn't know, who, who should on the surface be an enemy to him in every way. And he spends all night by his side feeding him, giving him water and wine to drink, cleaning and redressing his wounds, bringing comfort and prayer. And the next day, He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. Two denarii, two denarii. It's it's hard to like come up with the 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 amount to quantify that in modern terms, but best that I could tell with research, think about that in terms of like two thousand dollars. It was enough that if this was like a a real if this was like Motel Six, (laughs) he's putting him up for like three months. If it's a little nicer, if it's like a La Quinta, he's like putting him up for like two months. Yeah, he's getting free breakfast in the morning. It's not a super nice, this isn't like the Ritz, you know, it's an inn. It's not the nicest place, but this is sacrificial, generous giving where for, for two to three months, he's paying for this man's room and board. This isn't one night stay. 
This is a month or two months or three months of a stay at a hotel. Over-the-top kindness. And you think this is enough, right? How much more could he do? He's, he's done more than anyone would ever expect. So surely he's going to just bless this man and go on his way. But, but the love doesn't stop there. He says to the innkeeper, whatever you spend, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So he commits to pay the full price of this man's recovery, whatever the cost. Isn't he putting himself at like great risk? He's exposing himself and he's committing to return. What a powerful picture of what it looks like to love people. And so as we're reading this, we can ask the question. I asked myself the question, like, who do I love like this? Who in my life do I take such efforts to care for? And there's one person in my life that I take such efforts to care for. There's one person in your life you take such efforts to care for. It's, it's ourself. And no, whatever the cost, I can go into debt as long as I'm caring for myself. We all will live that way. Maybe with, with our family, surely with our family, and maybe even with a good friend, but none of us have done anything like this for a stranger or an enemy. This is a story of limitless love to an enemy stranger. An unexpected savior loves this man with no limits at great cost to himself. And so after telling the story, Jesus asks the easiest question in the world to the lawyer. He asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He doesn't have to think about it. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus says, you go and do likewise. See, Jesus' question reveals the lawyer's wrong question. Remember, the lawyer's question was, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' story is, is painting a picture of what it truly means to, to be a neighbor. The question isn't, hey, what kind of person do I have to love, which was the heart of the lawyer's question, but Jesus is trying to get him to see what kind of love needs to be expressed through people who truly love God. The question isn't, who do I have to love? The question is, what kind of love should I possess? And in light of that, Jesus commands, you go and do likewise. It's the final word of the passage, but in our own strength, it's an impossibility. We can't love like this unless God does a miracle in our life and changes us. We don't love perfectly. We don't love God perfectly. We don't love other people perfectly. But remember, the story is an answer to a question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And if this is what I have to do, love God fully, always, all the time, and love people like this all the time, then I'm a lost cause. We're all a lost cause on our own. As I'm reading this, I'm thinking, hey, who, 
How often do I hear this story and I put myself first and foremost in the shoes of the great Samaritan and I see myself as him, but first and rightly, it's it's necessary to not see ourselves as the good Samaritan. It's good and right and necessary to see ourselves as the robbed, the beaten, the broken, that, that I am fallen, I'm beaten by sin, I'm robbed of life, I am dying. I'm not the good Samaritan in this story. I'm the one who needs rescue and, and Jesus is the unexpected savior. I'm the one in need of saving. We are all the one in need of saving, which takes us to the third thing that we need to see, what the story is holding before us, that loving people begins with God's love. Nine times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the, the story, the accounts of Jesus' ministry on earth, nine different times Jesus is described as having compassion towards others. Like this good Samaritan had on the beaten man, Jesus is described as having compassion. And each time Jesus is described as having compassion, that always leads to loving action. He sees an outcast. He sees a, a leper who no one will touch, who's in need of healing. He has compassion and he moves towards him, lays hands on him and heals him. He sees crowds that are, that are hungry for physical food, but also hungry for spiritual truth and grace and mercy who've been given heavy burdens of self-righteousness and religious activity. And he has compassion on them and shares grace and mercy, mercy but also fills their bellies miraculously. And all that compassion, that love and action that Jesus shows in his ministry is just foreshadowing leading up to his ultimate love, the ultimate provision he's going to make for people, the ultimate healing he's going to provide, the ultimate invitation to the outcast, his, his grace and mercy, his compassion to us leading to loving action of his life being given for us on the cross. Psalm 103.13 says, a father shows compassion to his children. So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And what father would see one of his children beaten, stripped, half dead, in need, and walk on by? But a father would give everything and anything to see the restoration of that child. And God's compassion for his children is that act of love in the cross of Christ. Jesus didn't just feel for us, but he showed the depths of what he felt in his love by living for us, dying for us, and rising for us. Everything he could do to heal and redeem us. So this story isn't a, a call to perfection, first and foremost, to the follower of God. First and foremost, it's a story to somebody far from God who does not yet believe in God to show just what it takes to live a perfect life and to help us feel the reality that we can't do that. We can't love God perfectly. We can't love people perfectly. We need help. We need mercy. We need grace. We need salvation. We don't need to just try harder. We need a savior. Only Jesus totally loved God fully and always and forever. Only Jesus loved people like this. That leads us to the fourth thing. Loving people reflects God's love. 
So it's wrong to understand this story just as an example of the Christian virtue of love. But it's also probably not best that we would not see in this story a lesson for what Christian love should look like. In light of the love that we've received from God, we can look at the story of the Good Samaritan, look at the life of Christ, look at the love that we receive in Christ and and see example and, and character building and virtue as to how we live in love in the church for one another and live in love for our city that God's called us to. The night before the cross, Jesus, speaking to his friends, said this in John 13. A new command I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. See, like the disciples, as followers of Jesus, people who believe upon Jesus as our King and our Lord and our Savior, when we receive the love of God, we're changed by that love, and then we begin to show that love through God the Spirit working in and through us. We aren't saviors, we aren't Jesus, but we want to live in a way that, that lifts up how awesome of a Savior He is. We want to live in a way that people are reminded of his love by the way that we love each other and love the city. We show compassion like him so others will come to know his love like we have. And so as we come to a close, here's some questions that I want us to consider in light of the love shown in this story from Jesus. That if we are a follower of Jesus, here's some questions that I'm asking myself this week that I'd hold up for each of us to ask ourselves. How am I loving people sacrificially? Like in this story, how am I loving people sacrificially? Am I loving others in a way that cost me something? I'm asking myself, how am I loving people providentially? Am I believing that God in his sovereignty has placed people in my path that I'm called to show his love to? that my neighbors aren't my neighbors by accident, that my siblings aren't my siblings or my parents aren't my parents by chance, that God didn't make a mistake by having me work alongside and live alongside the people in my life, but he's providentially put them in my life that I may show them the love of God? Third question I'm asking myself, how am I loving people extensively? Am I just loving people who are easy to love because they're just like me? Or am I loving people for the glory of God who aren't like me? Am I a part of a community group that isn't just based on affinity, but, but we're diverse in, in our economic stage or our stage in life or our background, but we show the love of God to one another because we've all been shown the love of God and mercy and grace and we're all the family of God? Or am I loving people in my city across religious and political and cultural divides here in Edmond? And then the last question I'm asking myself is, how am I making loving people a priority? Does my life make room for people to love or is it overflowing with busyness? Am I caught in the suburban trap of an overscheduled life with activities that may be good, but as a result, I'm neglecting eternal things? Under the tyrant of too many kids' sports and, and too much overwork and anxious activity, 
is that I'm neglecting even the very love of my marriage or children or friends or people in my life who are far from God? Am I making loving people a priority? Let's stand and pray.